Good evening and welcome to the Pompey Politics Podcast. I'm Ian Tiny Morris. And I'm Simon Sandspring. Well, time flies when you're having fun, Simon, doesn't it? Last pod of November and uh, after this one, only a couple of more weeks left in the autumn winter season before Christmas is upon us. Um, it is indeed, yeah. Um, we are, as you say, at the end of the month um, and we're in the penultimate month of the year that seems to whiz past in a bit of like a blur between February and August. Um, and things are maybe going backwards a little bit, aren't they? Well, and I guess that's the fundamental question we'll look to address this evening, which is, you know, as our thoughts turn towards Christmas and the the, the countdown is, is, I mean, forks today, it'll be Boxing Day. And if all is well, you and I will probably be around your dad's house drinking his excellent port. Um, and that's what we're all hoping for. Well, obviously, many people aren't hoping about our port consumption, but I'm sure we are. But the question, I guess, is, is the new variant of the COVID virus going to put pay to that? Um, and both of us have made a complete hash of naming it, I think, in various ways. But I believe it's the Omnicon variant. Uh, I think it's, isn't it Omicron? Is it Omicron? Oh, good God. Well, it, just it, to me, just sticking I'm in just, random letters. and I, Well, they're just going for random kind of Greek letters from the Greek alphabet. Or they are just stealing all the good baddie names from series of Doctor Who. So Chris Chibnall is hurriedly renaming all the people in the next season of Doctor Who. Almost certainly, almost certainly. So the Omicron version that has originated in South Africa um, started popping up um, earlier in the week. And then the question, I guess, is has the government acted quickly enough? Is it going far enough? Um, or is it, again, a case of seeing the horse headed off into the middle distance and thinking, better do something with that stable door? Um, well, that was a bit Alan Bennett. Um, so, I yeah, could have it, done it that does... full Alan Bennett. Oh, <laughs> is it a case of the government looking at the horse heading off into the distance, as I said to Thora Heard, as I bolted the stable door? Okay, yeah, um, sorry, listeners, maybe maybe we'll ask Ian not to do that. Um, but, um, yeah, don't worry, we'll be nowhere near a microphone after consuming the port. Um so, yeah, I guess the kind of whole thing, if we cast our minds back to last year, it was all um, the government and the prime minister saying, I'm going to save Christmas from the scientists. Actually, have people round, have people round. It'll be a normal Christmas. You could do this. Oh, oh actually, no, sorry. Um, but you, yeah, actually, you've only got a couple of days now. So can't, it's, can um, I just say, for the record, having had a bit of a pop at my Alan Bennett, yeah. then rolling out your very own Boris Johnson. I think if there's an impersonation rap battle, old son, I have won that one hands down. But I, no, I, I think he did. The whole let's save Christmas, we're going to have a normal Christmas, which, you know, those of us at the time who, who kind of, you know, been watching these things, looked at it and went, I don't think you are. And, you know, so it came to pass. So we're four weeks out now. And um... yes, well, the, the measures that the that the PM announced uh, yesterday were um, and he did made a make a bit of a pepper pig's ear of it were that um, that basically from from Tuesday, there's a there's a slew of um, countries in Africa that have been added to the red list. So only people from the UK and Ireland that are returning from those countries um, are actually going to be allowed in. Anyone else is actually um, banned transit from coming from those countries and um, you would need to be able to pass a, you'd have to pass a, a, a PCR test um, in order to um, come out of uh, self-isolation. Um, so there's those. I don't think that's quite correct. Oh. I, I, be I believe for those countries, Anyone coming in from the red list countries who are, and you're right, it's only UK nationals that can return. I believe they have to go into a mandatory 10-day quarantine. I think in terms of 
anybody returning from any other overseas destination will be required from Tuesday to do a PCR test on the second day they get back and are, we'll use the word required in air quotes, to self-isolate until they get back the negative response. So, uh, yeah, sorry, you're, you're right. So passengers from, so UK and Irish residents um, returning from those countries um, have to stay in a quarantine hotel yep. uh, for 11 nights. Um, but passengers from other countries um, will um, have to take a COVID test before takeoff unless they are double vaccinated, but they need to complete a PCR test on the second and eighth day of arrival um, and isolate for uh, 10 days if unvaccinated although they can pay um, to have a test on the on day five, which ends their quarantine if it's negative. So that's that's actually the, think, the current measure. Yeah, I think the, the, the uh, and again, the, the one that, oh, as with all these measures, you know, the piece I think that worries me is that, you know, if you've had your two weeks in the winter sun in the Canary Islands and you're flying back and you're landing on Wednesday morning, and you've arranged to be back at work on Thursday, are you actually then going to take the additional two days holiday on Thursday and Friday, take your PCR test, hope that the result comes back over the weekend so that you can go back to work on Monday? Or are you going to, I don't know, take a lateral flow? I, I don't know. I just, my worry is always with these measures. It's about compliance and what do you do you know, how do you ensure that the measure you're putting in place actually is followed? Um, yes, but the the PM has gone on um, repeatedly previously on um, trusting in common sense mm. and people doing the right thing. Um, in any in any large group of people, there will always sadly be people that believe that rules don't apply to them. Um, mm, yeah, if only there were. A, there weren't so many examples of, of of those in government, I guess. But it, um, so it, it's um, yeah, I guess that's the kind of question. But one of the things that was then sort of teased a bit of a spoiler in the announcement from the PM yesterday, but he ended up confirming it in the um, in the answers that he gave to the journalists that were that were assembled at, at number ten, um, and someone tweeted it from his from his Twitter was basically that face masks in in shops and public transports will will also be uh, mandatory unless you're exempt from Tuesday. Um, so yes, um, but I hear that um, that Sage had been perhaps actually suggesting that um, that a so um, returning to the suggestion of work from home if you can would have also been the greatest um, possible impact on the potential spread of Omicron, um, but that the government decided not to proceed with at this time. But they'll be reviewing these measures in three weeks, right? Which will be just seven, as you, as you said earlier on, just seven days before just Christmas. Before Christmas, exactly that. And I, I guess when I look look at it and 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 look you know the, we, we all know that this is a very nuanced discussion and often on social media um nuance is is very much lost so that there is an element of i want to frame this within any precautionary measures we take are good precautionary measures you know so there's an element of wearing a face mask in an indoor setting sanitizing your hands looking to respect people's personal space and social distancing all of that stuff is really helpful i think the thing that i'm i'm kind of that worries me about what's been announced this week is is it a is it a path of least resistance for the government to announce the measures which they think people won't mind too much um possibly i mean looking at the examples of 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 how of how they've approached it previously um it does seem that um that actually what's um what they've decided to do is to um is to do the thing that they think is going to cause the less furore that um, people will kind of go for. But by hesitating that much, it then actually inevitably means that they have to do 
eventually be dragged to doing something harsher and more sterner at a later date than actually if they just actually were more decisive um, and were more robust in the actions that they take um, at, at, um, at an earlier point. I mean, as an example, the other three um, elements, you know, the three countries of the UK... So to be fair, th- this kind of conversation is about the rules in England because mm. in Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales, um, they never removed the requirement to continue to wear a face mask in um, in public enclosed spaces and on and on public transport. Um, and so in, in that kind of in that kind of respect, um, as much as they don't really, I think most of them pragmatically have decided that from a control measures of travel coming into their their respective countries because they're part of the UK um their ability to kind of control their control their borders is um is diminished by them being uh, part of the common travel area and being part of the UK so decided effectively by the UK government so it's it would be impractical to have a different travel set of circumstances in well a vastly a different set of travel circumstances in um in Scotland than it would be in England because no one's going to erect a you know an actual physical border uh, between Scotland um, and England, um, but let's not get diverted by that one. There's a whole kind of different question there. But it, so, from a perspective of, it seems that kind of England has kind of trailed behind a bit. So, from a perspective of, actually, what will happen about the infection spread in the respective elements of the UK, bearing in mind that some have had um, mask wearing in public continuously and some haven't have those in England then been exposed and therefore allowed greater community spread which may or may not be to the benefit if it means that actually people have built up a a natural immunity and of course there's the whole kind of rollout of boosters which although there's a question mark about whether Omicron will diminish the effectiveness of the vaccines the vaccines will still be massively effective um, in reducing spread and in reducing the severity of the health um, outcome concerns of people that get infected. So it's, to be fair, it's an, un- it's an unfolding situation, but it feels again like we're playing catch up. Yeah, and I think the, the, there is an element of, of, if we look at the whole mask thing, if I just give you an example, is that, so the organisation I work for, um, you know, whilst they've got people, limited people coming back to offices, our policy is still that, if you're in an indoor space and you're in a work setting, you wear a face mask. Now, um, over the last month, I've attended three some 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 face-to-face meetings and and some training, and they were all at the the old-fashioned conference-style venue. So we, as an organisation, turned up and we all wore face masks whilst trolling about inside the venue. We were the only people to be wearing a face mask. You know, it, it was literally, and again, I had colleagues from Scotland who were like, well, this is weird. You know, actually just seeing people indoors without face masks is, well, it's just alien. You just don't do it. Um, and one of them had come down on the train and had said, well, it's weird because everybody who got on in Edinburgh all got on with a mask. And the second the train got to Newcastle, which was its first stop in England, everybody who got on the train didn't wear a mask literally to a person and she said it just felt so odd that you know on that one journey you could just see that difference between the the two approaches um yeah yeah sorry i didn't mean to interrupt you no i I, and i think that the 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 piece which which i if i look at which worries me about the 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 trying to put the masks back on on tuesday is for the vast majority of people they've just got out of the habit of doing it um i i think uh, i think a, a a lot have um but it uh, to me I, despite the practicalities of reminding people to do it or or the concerns that some people won't do it doing it isn't a difficult thing to do obviously no. unless you're medically exempt so i, th- I think that I think that people will get back into the habit. It's just the question of it would have been nicer to see a, a clearer uh, message on that. And indeed, one of the one of the journalists actually asked the PM, um, you know, are, are you um, are you 
imploring people really kind of firmly to um, to follow the um, to follow the mandatory mask wearing. Um, and I don't know whether that was a lead into the, the you know the concerns about those images a couple of weeks ago about the PM going around a hospital not wearing a mask himself. But from a perspective of there was a real opportunity there for him to say to the country, yes, actually, we all need to do this. We all need to make sure that by protecting each other yep. and reducing communal spread, that we um, that we wear these face coverings in, in order to in order to help each other um, be be just that bit safer. And it's these it's just these little things. There's no one thing that will eradicate COVID. There's no, no one thing that will make it impossible for uh for people to catch it you know, unless you're like in you know some you know an airtight container with a, with your own oxygen supply i guess but but you take a list of measures to kind of help you and those are the kind common you know that those things aren't unfamiliar to us like you say we've just got out of the habit so those things are the the wearing of a face covering in in enclosed public spaces unless you're exempt um the hand sanitization the social distancing which wasn't included in in the instructions that were discussed yesterday um and nor was for example um requirements to uh, to wear them in um um in restaurants um and and things like that so so in in that sort of space there also wasn't uh wasn't talked about the requirement to um to, you know to demonstrate um, a, a vaccine passport which yeah. um is required in other other parts of the country well and i think here you t t touch on the, the the piece that one of one of the many pieces that worries me is that the prime minister is has clearly been setting out his stall um, since the pandemic started as a libertarian. You know, well, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm just going to rely on your good nature and your 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 British sense of pluck to do the right thing. Well, that, sorry, that's not good enough. And that's where that's why this worries me because there's an element of, you know, it, it, uh, and I shared this example on social media today. If I look at my day yesterday, you know, I I, I did go into a shop and I did pop the mask on for the ten minutes I was in there. You know, I was good and compliant. Um, then I went to the rugby club, and whilst I know you are not an expert in the in the field rugby football, you know that it involves two groups of men getting fairly close to each other. It's a physical contact sport. So there was six... Sounds like my kind of thing, but go on. Anyway, indeed, yes. Um, so the 70 old chaps running into each other yesterday and me stood in freezing cold. Um, and I got too cold, so I went to the bar to warm up, as is the tradition oh, in, in rugby circles. For medicinal well, reasons. For medicinal reasons. So now those 70 chaps who have been in close proximity are now in the bar with me, and there's now 100 of us, 150 people, in the bar. And we're all having a jolly good chat and natter, and we're taking a beer, and there isn't a face mask inside. And so we then finished our beer and all headed off home. And, and you know, I, I look at that, and that'll be okay next Saturday. Yeah, it, and I mean, with any with any rules, there will be inconsistencies. But that is a kind of glaringly obvious one, isn't it? Is that, um, and, and that kind of comes back to the fundamental questions of: should the government have to be spoon feeding people to make those decisions? And, and the truth is that although some people might actually um, quite well conclude that those sorts of things should be should be avoided, or um, or indeed the organisers should. Yeah, you know, should kind of look at look at the risk of um, infection spread within such a close, confined space with so many people, and and make alternative arrangements. But unless the government mandate mandate it, there will always be people that think that that's not an issue. Well, um, I, I, um, I think it goes we, further than that, because uh, you know, if we look at the unlocking, you know, the last place that that the government unlocked was nightclubs, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. because they knew that uh, the definition of a nightclub would be it would be full of people breathing on each other in ahem, close proximity. And in terms of that was the, you know, you didn't have to be a skilled virologist to know that that was the highest risk scenario, which is why it was the last one lock. And so, I, and this is where I, 
that this whole libertarian angle really worries me in that, well, we're not actually prepared to deal with that, or we're not going to put sanctions back on nightclubs, which means that people are going to quote unquote think it's safe because, well, if it weren't safe, then the government would shut it down like they did last time. Yeah, I, I mean, indeed. I mean, um, to be fair, I mean, Lynn in the comments has said that um, it um, said that it, it, and I quote, it looks to me like we're saving the economy at the expense of the people um, and that the PM had, had skirted the issue. So, you know, it, it it's kind of clear to, to some that um, that there is a there is a lack of decisiveness and uh, and leadership um and whether whether that you know whether that causes problems further down the line i guess only only time will tell we're you know it's early days for omicron we we don't quite know how much more infectious it is if at, if at all than any of the other variants we, do, we don't know how much more serious it is um than than the other variants there just isn't there just isn't the data yet um but, but we were kind of in a learning curve, but we've got some learnings that we had from last year, from late last year and actually from early last year. We're, we're in a better situation in many ways. We know what sorts of measures we can put in place. We know now how to how to manage those and how to how to put them in place. We also know what the what the issues with some of them are because of the rapid changes that had to be made to some of them that were you know instigated at very, very short notice. We've obviously got we obviously got vaccinations um including including boosters now um and and the government talking about um you know talking um talking about um putting a i think the words the pm used was boosting the booster program um so you know in in that respect we've got tools in our arsenal now that we didn't have last year so maybe we don't quite need to react how we missed out last year but I am still a bit worried that we are going to make similar mistakes again that we that we could have learned from. Well, I guess the question for me, and this is this or, or the key part here, is that this variant is worrying us enough to to change our behaviours, to mm -hmm. to put control measures back in place. If you can just bear with me, just one second, I have a dog to attend to, which I know shouldn't happen in the podcast. Okay, so while while Ian sorts out his guide dog, who has suddenly decided that um, that they want to go to the loo, so um, so yeah, we you know the concern would be: is the government doing enough? Is it is it reacting too slowly? Is it um, is it reacting too um, is it doing too little too late again? Um, Sadly, we'll only kind of find out in about three year, three weeks' time yeah. whether actually this turns out to have been too little, too late, and actually something kind of harsher needs to be kind of stomping down on it um, at, at that point. It it does certainly feel. I kind of understand that you know to some degree. You know, you you could observe that it feels like the the PM's doing what he can to save the um, the golden quarter of the you know the Christmas shopping period. Um, but is that the right thing to do for the you know for the for the country? Obviously, the the businesses that have struggled for the last two years are really really dependent on this time of year for people to be shopping. But if suddenly people are more hesitant to go out um, again, or there are more restrictions that they need to put in place that that cost them uh, measures to put in place, it, it, it's an un unideal world, and you have to put in place um, less than ideal. Um, solutions because you have to put in place what you can but do something it's that i think that for, for me that keeps, seems to be kind of the obvious call out as, a, as, a, as the cat comes backwards and forwards across the screen yes enid blyton has come to join me now so all of my animals are attempting to wreck my ability to broadcast this podcast in a sensible and informed way um, okay well despite evidence to the contrary ian doesn't actually live in an animal shelter no um but um but there we go yeah, so I I think for me that the bit that concerns me is the fact that the the only measures we've taken are the ones that are easy and are non-controversial. We could have added the work from home if you can to that, mm -hmm. which which for me is a missed opportunity because it just. Uh, but again, it's that it's that balance that we talk about, isn't it? You know, of of all those, you know, all of those local. Or that infrastructure around, you know, people who went to work in offices, um, and that 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 infrastructure has been under pressure because, you know, people just don't go to offices anymore. 
um, you know, and again, I, I, I was back at our head office on Thursday, and it's only as I walked in that I realised that the noble Tim no longer exists, who was the, the one-man person that ran the little sandwich shop and coffee vending service at our head offices. And the answer is, well, you know, what happened to Tim? Well, Tim's gone, and although we're back with the head office open, you know, there's probably 20% of the people there that worked there before. Yeah, there's... I mean, there's, you know, there's, there are places that are um, either kind of splitting their work week uh, between between home um, and yep. the, the office. There are places that haven't returned to the office. So indeed now need considerably less uh, floor space. So, you know, if there are shops or, um, you know, concession units or whatever, whether they're attached to a particular office or, or, or they're independent of them, um, that there just isn't the footfall that there used to be to sustain them. But that does mean that there is there are people around actually in the places where they live. Um, so, you know, it, that does, you know, that's obviously bad news for the, you know, for the franchisees, for exa example, of um, large coffee chains in the centre of cities. Yep. Um, but it's good news for the corner shop down the road from us because, um, you know, if if that means that, okay, you've got to break time, I wander down the road and, um, you know, get a packet of crisps or whatever. So... It's um it it's um it you know uh, again only time will tell but it, but again while you have to kind of consider while you have to consider the the economic impacts, um, people that are hospitalised or worse don't spend any money. So no no and and I think that is that that is the key piece and 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 the worry for me is that you know even with such modest modest measures proposed. The, the ridiculous, you, you know, the number of, of people who I would consider to be reasonably sane and sensible who've shared things from, well, I won't be having my booster again then. I don't understand what the point this is if I'm just going to be repressed and locked down and do the tyrannical will abuse my nature as a freeborn Englishman. You just say, oh, for God's sake, really? Really? Yeah. Uh uh, and that kind of brings us to a to a nice segue talking about so obviously we are you know even if omicron does diminish the effectiveness of the vaccines they're still um they're still wildly much more effective than not having um a vaccine yep. that's no that's no reason to um you know to uh, to avoid them so um so in our in our extensive research um for this evening we look we looked at vaccine hesitancy um and one of the um one of the points that um that um, I think it was Gary had put out on our when we'd shared on on Facebook in the Portsmouth Politics uh, group uh, about the episode that we were going to do today um, was the question of what's vaccine hesitancy like um, in the NHS, for example, compared to the rest of the country. What's what's that you know what's that actually like overall? Is um is that a cause for concern? Um, and you'll be interested to know that we we well I did some delving. Um, off of two different data sets. So there were some sets of information from the ons.gov.uk uh, um, for um, for England um, and some information about NHS in a study that was done by The Lancet. Um, and those, those sets of information um, said that actually broadly, um, and I'm going to pop this on screen for those of us following live, but I'll talk, I'll talk through it. Um, for those of us listening for the for the podcast afterwards, so broadly, actually, overall, UK, uh, sorry, in England, um, vaccine hesitancy is is about four percent of the population that's in that's entitled to it. But vaccine hesitancy um, in the um, in the NHS is about twenty two, twenty three percent. And that was a wow moment for me, you know, four percent. I guess. You know, and 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 forgive me here. I am not going to walk a neutral line. Um, I am not going to be balanced in my opinion. I know that might surprise some. Um, so I can get that four percent of the population are stupid, um, and I'm I, I can I can accept that because statistically that that seems reasonable. But twenty two percent of three million workers. Um, yeah, and, it, and uh, yeah, and really, and um, 
more shockingly, as you as you break down the information, um, so um, the the information is is stratified in in both sets of data um, to ethnic groupings. So um, in mixed race groupings um, in England, that's seven uh, percent. In an NHS, thirty four. Um, for uh, people from an Asian background, that's six uh, percent England and twenty four in the NHS. Um, for uh, for Black groups, that's 21% um, in England and 40% in the NHS. Uh, and there weren't any figures for England for um, other ethnic uh, groups, um, but there was uh, data captured for 28. But to be fair, the the some of this data is actually really kind of small sample sizes mm. with regards to those kind of those, those groups. Um, but the but the information from the Lancet is, is actually data um, taken from uh, from a survey of eleven and a half thousand um, healthcare workers. So it's um, you know that's that's quite considerable. But it's easy to be drawn by the percentages in those in those particular ethnic groupings. But when you look at the um, England wide stats, the number of so even though um, hesitancy amongst uh, the white population is actually 4%, the number of, um, they only contribute 4% of the hesitancy overall of, of, that, um, of that survey sample, which I think was, was about 15,000 mm. uh, people, um, whereas actually all of the non-white groups only contributed to 0.5% sorry their vaccine hesitancy only represented 0.5 percent of the overall sample size in, in total so it's a uh, uh, it's it's it says certain things about how that kind of plays out in in particular um ethnic communities um but actually overall the the obviously the largest number of people that are vaccine hesitant is the is the white population because they are the larger size of of the population? Yeah, I think the 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 the, the, the general hesitancy data is kind of, uh, and I think that you know that that when you look at that through the lens, it does the the worry there is that you know there is a there is an over representation from non white ethnic groups in the hospitalisation and death figures, um, and, and the worry is that. That you know, whilst that remains that remains the case, the fact that there is a higher rate of hesitancy within those communities, you know, continues to be a, a kind of real worry, um, you know, and that, and that messaging, you know, you, you know, can't afford to stop. But the NHS numbers—they're just terrifying. Um, yeah, in, indeed, um, and um, there's some further breakdown in the information from the from the Lancet. They they talked about actually what the reasons for um, that hesitancy um, that hesitancy was, and, and some of that is, um, um, to be honest, is, is quite eye opening. Um, so um, so distrust leading to vaccine hesitancy amongst health NHS healthcare workers. Um, the concerns raised were about the speed of vaccine development, the efficacy and safety of vaccines in general, mistrust of the healthcare organisation due to prior unethical research practices, uh, lack of representation and inclusion of ethnic minorities in trials, um, and institutional raci racism and discrimination. So it kind of speaks to a lot of wider systemic issues um, as to, you know, even if, the, if you're if you feel unable to trust the information that your own employer um, and your employer is in the business of trying to keep people healthy, if you're, if you feel that you're unable to trust the information that your own employer is, is giving to you and giving to the public, that, uh, that's, that says lots of things and none of them good. Yeah, but it, <laughs> it, it does say some bad things, but it, it also just says, for me it just screams bad understanding of data that's the bit that you know bear in mind i've got a you know a little bit of a background in this you know when they talk about unethical healthcare practices every major pharmaceutical company in the world if you go back through their history you will find an example of where they have done something unethical and they've received eye-watering fines for doing it so you'll find that in every healthcare, you know, but for the vast majority of those, they were 30, 40 years ago. You know, there are not that many modern examples. 
And if you look at the way in which the research was done on these particular vaccines, almost all of it was done on open platform sharing sites where all the scientists in all the pharma companies in the world effectively collaborated to, to you know, so that sort of, that, oh, I don't know, that, that, oh, you know, they, they probably fiddled the results. Mindset, it just, I, I struggle to understand why the layman would think that. Why somebody who works in healthcare might think that. It, it, it's mind-numbing. Um, yeah, and indeed, when you when you look at the um, when you look at the NHS um, data, um, when you when you drill that down to uh, hesitancy amongst particular types of roles in the NHS, um, that actually gives you um, some interesting figures. So, uh, twenty eight point two percent of um, nurses, um, nursing assistants, uh, midwives um, were vaccine hesitant. 23.9% uh, allied health professionals, 21.7% admin estates or other roles, 21.1% dental, but 18.4% of doctors and medical support staff were vaccine hesitant. That's nearly one in five doctors. You've gone to bloody college to learn about this stuff. And you, oh dear God. So, you know, to me, the, 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 the the um the qualitative data that was behind uh, behind this um behind this study in the Lancet w was speaking to the particular comments that um that, that NHS professionals had, had kind of given, but they did they do kind of constantly speak about um speak um about you know the issues that we that we kind of talked about earlier about um trusting um you know how can we trust clinicians when we know that they're not following guidance. How do we know what rules to follow when the when the messages are changing and often contradictory? We're overwhelmed with the amount of information. There's a lack of information in other languages, a lack of trust and confusion around hesitancy. There's stigma around it, which makes it difficult then for people to feel that they can approach someone for um, to help um, help inform them. Um, distrust around the risks not being communicated transparently in a about a lack of prioritisation given to ethnic minorities in studies, given that they suffer disproportionately higher chances of worse health outcomes, um, and ethnic minority communities being singled out in messaging and media, um, adding to a feeling of stigmatisation, a, a lack of direct um, engagement to address and respond to um, issues or concerns, um, and the language used around groups and stereotyping, kind of speaking to the stigmatization and just a lack of transparency around uh, around the decision making. So it it kind of, to be honest, that that creates an impression of an environment where trust is is very 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 thin on the ground. It, it, it does. It it, it it does. But again, I I still can't. Uh, I I guess you know the, the I, I'm. I'm finding this whole, this whole kind of segment just baffling, um, because I, I, I just don't understand how somebody who is educated and knowledgeable, who has the ability to understand the science and the data, can't get over their own nervousness, to to do you know the phrase do your own research has been weaponized but if anybody was in a position to understand the bloody research and the data it would be people in from a medical background um and if you looked at it you know the the evidence is absolutely overwhelming and particularly you know when you saw back in the pre-vaccine you know icu wards overflowing with people dying of the thing and now post-vaccine you're seeing a completely different dynamic surely that should be just enough to make you go there must be something in this um well you well you you'd think um but to me i i, I mean i obviously i'm not on the front line at the nhs i don't know what it's really like to to work there and obviously that'll be a a a, a broad and differing experience depending on you know which part of it you you work in how the trust that you're you know what the trust that you're working at um is run like so it 
I guess in any kind of large organization, you're going to have, um, you'd have a fair number of people that would be distrusting of the strategic and more specific decisions actually made by, uh, by the people in positions of power to make those decisions. But, you know, maybe we're just kind of thinking that those sort that sort of level of distrust from upper management, you know, sorry, from the front line of the upper management and the strategic decisions, um, made wouldn't apply to the nhs um and and sadly this this kind of says you know says otherwise i mean you know from the you know from the um ons um england wide data so not just nhs but um basically people people across england you know the reasons that, that people gave for vaccine hesitancy you know 54 percent said that they're worried about long-term effects on the health 58 said a percent said that they're worried about the side effects of the vaccine. 55, I think the vaccine's been developed too quickly. Um, 45 percent, I'm waiting to see how well the, it, the vaccine works out. Um, <laughs> oh, 30, God. 30, it was good of them to use the rest of us as guinea pigs, I guess. Yeah, yeah, 30, no, no, 30, it's, it's 30, lovely 30, to know I mean, that I'm part of a study. You know, it's, uh... for, but, but, I mean, in that respect, that's kind of like sound scientific process, right? You see how it works out to, to put, you know, to kind of, t- but nonetheless, um, 34% um, don't feel that I'm at risk because I'm in good health and 29% um, I think other measures are enough to keep me safe, i.e. face covering, social distancing and now, washing hands. There, so there's, there's so kind that, of like a... That, that's the only bit I'm going to forgive people for. Right. Because there is an element of if you're a 20-something and you're in good health and you you know you you eat well you live right you you know you've not got any of those underlying conditions you don't smoke you're not overweight you don't drink too much if you are that person then objectively the risk to you as an individual is low you're probably going to get it and you're probably going to get away with it fine statistically that's that's the truth so th- those bits i guess and maybe that's where i might but I don't see, you know, if we looked at those numbers again and the demographic was skewed that actually the, the majority of vaccine hesitancy was coming from those under 30 in the NHS, I guess I could start to understand that a little bit better. Um, well, there were some um, some interesting call outs at, um, I mean, I haven't got stratification figures on it, but but they um, but the, the, the study in the Lancet. Um, called out that some things were um, increased the chances that so someone was much more likely to be vaccine hesitant okay. um, if they were younger, if they were female, um, and that may have been skewed by about sixty three percent of respondents that um, said that they were pregnant, said that they were vaccine hesitant. But at the time the study was done, the the clinical advice was not to get the vaccine if you're mm. pregnant. So that may have kind of affected those those sorts of figures. Yeah. Um, if you score high, so some of the questions were about, you know, basically how one kind of like a sliding scale, do you, how much do you believe um, COVID-19 conspiracy theories? Those that had a higher propensity to believe um, COVID conspiracy theories, those who had a systemic lower trust in their employer and those that didn't take the 2020 flu vaccine all seem to be indicators of, um, of an increased likelihood to be vaccine hesitant. So again, it kind of speaks to this thing about misinformation, thing mm. about distrust, um, and um, yeah, it. Uh, I mean, that's that's quite alarming in in a profession that you'd think actually would be quite switched on about this, but maybe we're doing them a disservice by applying different rules to them than we are kind of thinking. I'm, and I'm no disrespect to, to porters, but I bet they don't get a chance to stop and ask doctors random questions about how vaccines work during True. the course of their day. True. True. so um you know uh you know maybe maybe kind of that's the you know that, that yeah. that's kind of a thing there but it, it 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 it's yeah it's just an interesting thing about um there, there was sorry more done about what um what measures could be put in place that would convince someone to decide to forego their vaccine hesitancy well, and I think that's that. That's got to be absolutely the, the the key, hasn't it? Because if we look at it, you know, we, we've mandated for care home workers. We're now mandating for NHS mm-hmm. staff. We know there is a there is start. There are staff shortages within the NHS. But again, that tends to be at the more clinical end. You know, doctors, nurses, midwives. Um, so, 
it'll be very interesting to see whether mandating the vaccine, you know, there's two schools of thought that says if you mandate vaccine, um, you know, mandatory vaccination, that only hardens the 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 stance of the, the libertarian. Um, but I guess for some, it may be a case of, well, I don't really want the vaccine, but I can't really afford and don't want to lose my job. So stick it in my arm. There's a there's an interesting um, so one of the conclusions that w- that was drawn in in the study um, in, so this is the study again in in the Lancet was that um, and this was this was reported before uh, mandatory um, vaccination in the NHS was um, was um, was on the cards um, so whilst mandatory um, vaccination and and these measures may improve vaccine uptake our results indicate that implementation of these policies may undermine trust in the healthcare organization um, and vaccination um, hesitancy um, would not be seen um, equally across, sorry, vaccine, the vaccine program would not be seen equally across ethnic groups uh, and such interventions have a potential to increase the stigma and discrimination and widen um, ethnic um, um, but, disparities. So it's, but, but uh, I don't, again, that no, I don't, would, no, I'm not having this I'm, I, okay. the, 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 because ultimately, and, and, and this is where for me, when you get into these areas, you know, you, you, that there is a there is a certain nervousness that the stigma and the you know that the, the there's almost well you can't force people. I don't I don't accept this. I just don't accept it. It is a the vaccine is an offer, and as I think you've pointed out many times, you get vaccinated for basically to protect yourself, to protect your loved ones, and to protect the people that you don't know. You know, it is a threefold reason for doing it. So there is an element of, I, I kind of, I, I don't, I don't support, but I accept if, for your own selfish reasons, you don't feel you need it to protect you. I can even extend that out to. You kind of think your loved ones will be all right if you don't do it, but what I can't accept is that in a care setting in the NHS you think it's okay to gamble with the health of the people you don't know who you care for. So I I don't care what your reasons are for being vaccine hesitant. That is between you and your God. But if you're there to look after vulnerable people, you don't get the right to choose whether you're going to put them at risk. I, I, I'm, you know, to be fair, I, I don't know yeah, that I disagree on on yeah. that point, but I, but I think it's, uh, you know, this is just what the what the yeah. Lancet study is saying and what that what they're kind of what they're calling out. I think there's an opportunity there to engage with, um, and assure people, um, in a way that will help resolve their concerns. Yeah. You know, there's, there, in any in any large and in any organisation as large as the NHS, there's always you know, there's always going to be someone that you you know who's who's who you can't convince who is determined no. not to change their mind. I mean, you know, in a, we you know we've experienced enough people that we've talked to over the over the hundred plus episodes that we do this that sometimes there are people whose whose mind isn't open to reason or, or change. Um, yeah. Some for valid reasons and some some not. But nonetheless, it's um, it. It's a worthwhile effort, and it's incumbent on any employer to do what they can to resolve any concerns yep. that employees might have about uh, about their treatment in, in the workplace. Um, and if someone was, you know, in any in any setting, if someone, you know, if if the, you know, if where I work, someone was expressing concerns about vaccine hesitation, as much as it would be tempting try to trying to resolve those, I'm not a clinician, I'm not a virologist, I'm not a doctor. I'd advise them to go speak to theirs, which yep. admittedly isn't necessarily that easy. But I'd advise them to speak to someone that knows what they're talking about, because um, they may have, you know, they you know, beside the fear and and the rubbish that they see on Facebook or my uncle's daughter's nephew's dog put yep. this YouTube video out. Um, there may be something actually underlying that's actually behind that fear that can actually be resolved, but that's some, you know, that's something that perhaps professionals should be doing it instead of, um, instead of um, amateur podcast hosts. But yeah, but and, I like, and, yeah. And I'm good. Let, let's educate. And I'm good for educate before we legislate, but 
Oh, that's a slogan. Um, we might use that later. Um, but there's an element of, for me, we're past that now. And, and you know, we're, we're at that well, point. Well, we definitely are in care home settings. The question yes. is, you know, if the government are talking about putting in place by April the, uh, the same measure for frontline NHS staff, there's an opportunity between now and then to, you know, to, to forgive the phrase, to win that engagement war. Yep. you know to to actually deal with it and this report gives clues about how the government or healthcare trusts might might perhaps actually go about that um but um you remember when we said about there were things that would convince people um that would convince people that were vaccine hesitant to forego their hesitancy and just get yes, jabbed indeed. anyway um i haven't got like a game show noise because I, um, I didn't want to actually make it um make it you know um sound that fun so there are six different um answers to this okay two of them are 13 percent two of them are 16 percent and two of them are 19 percent okay and and here are here are the uh, here are the answers so i i was vaccine hesitant but i i would get the jab if it helps restrictions to ease and life to return to normal what do you think that would go I think that's in the middle. Okay. 16%. Okay. Um, I'd forgo my vaccine hesitancy if I was offered vouchers or discounts. I think they did this in the States, didn't they? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. People yeah, money yeah. to go get a jab. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm going to say that people are selfish. I'm going to put that in the 19%. Okay. Um, if my employer told me that I needed to be vaccinated for work, yeah, that's in the top. That's that's the I read that's the top one. Okay, to protect myself from the coronavirus, thirteen percent. To protect others from the coronavirus, sixteen percent. Uh, and to make it easier for me to go on holiday abroad, thirteen percent. Okay, um, now I'll reveal to everyone else at home. So, if my employer told me that I needed to be vaccinated to work, 13%. No. Vouchers yeah, vouchers or discounts, 13%. If it helps restrictions to ease and life to return to normal, 16%. You were right on that one. To make it easier for me to go on holiday abroad, that's 16%. Um, and to protect myself from the coronavirus and to protect others from the coronavirus, uh, both of those were 19%. So you got one of those right. I just... <laughs> but it, I, oh, it's, it's, a, it's an episode of incredulity for me because those two top two at 19%, that's what the vaccine does. Well, yes. I definitely have it if it did what it does. Well, it does that. Oh, maybe I'll have it then. It's like a seventies sketch show. This, um, just without the the um, cheap, thinly veiled racism or homophobic or misogynistic gags. Um, yeah, 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 so, yeah, no, yeah. We, we don't do those anymore. No, we well, we don't. No. So, um, another part of the another part of the ONS study, um. That's on the um, on the gov.uk um, website. Um, also talks about um, people that so they've done different they've done different sets of collecting data actually over the course of the last year. Um, and what they did is they talked to the group of people that had previously said that they were vaccine hesitant, mm -hmm. um, and they split them into into three different groups. Um, so this is where you get some good news. So forty two percent of them had said that they they were unsure about getting the vaccine. 33% said they were unlikely to get the vaccine um, and 25% have outright declined. They're not going to get the vaccine. Yep. Okay. Um, now, of the 42% that were unsure, 60% of those actually went on to get vaccinated. Oh, this is encouraging news. And 38% of them are, are still unvaccinated. Of the 33% that said that they were unlikely to get vaccinated... I feel like they should have like a higher or lower. 40% have gone on to get vaccinated and 59%. Um, do excuse if any of these don't add up to 100. It's because of rounding, um, yeah, rounding stuff. Yeah, that's fine. 59% um, yeah. um, of them 
are still unvaccinated. Okay. Yep. Um, and of the twenty-five percent of the overall, I'm not, you know, I'm the vaccine yep. hesitant um, group from the previous data set. 21% have gone on to get vaccinated. So the ones that are declined a vaccine outright. You're not getting that in my arm. Right. And 78% yep. of those are still unvaccinated. So it's encouraging, I guess, that one in five of the most stupid are now vaccinated. You know what we said about stigma earlier on? No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I, I told you I wasn't going to be balanced about this. For me, okay. if, if, if you refuse to get vaccinated... You are thicker than a whale omelette. I'm, I'm, I'm not pulling any punches on this. I am, I am not taking a mediation ground on it. So, I mean, so in broad terms, one in five, the most, have have crossed the line. I guess forty percent. So that's what that's uh, that's two in. Yeah, it's, I'm quite encouraged by those figures. That there, yeah. there is so there is hope that you know the old. You, you can't educate pork is the uh, an old adage, but it would seem that actually if you try really hard, you can. So um, um, I wasn't going to make any links to Peppa Pig World. Um, so, yes, so of, of that group of people that previously were listed as vaccine hesitant, 44% have actually gone on to be vaccinated and 55% are still unvaccinated. Yeah, and, and, and I guess but, if that's... Like you say, there's hope. There is hope. There is hope there because, you know, ultimately, you know, as you said, as you, you said yourself, you know, you perfectly summed it up. There is no magic bullet. One thing is not going to, you know, quote unquote, save us from COVID. And I think it's clear. And, and I think anyone who knew a little or a lot knew that at some point, a variation would appear from part of the third world that was going to give us some bother. Um, that was a given. It, it was. I mean, obviously, there was there were conversations about whether strategically the better thing to do would be to inc um, to donate um, or support poorer countries in order to get vaccinations started and done in their countries rather than racing to a like 90% plus <clears throat> vaccination rate in our own countries because unless we're all safe unless all of us are safe none of us are safe because there is all the time there is a partially vaccinated population there will be a chance for contagion and the more infections that there are the greater likelihood there is of um, mutation and then spread yep. that you know if the virus discovers a way um yeah i guess that's how the evolutionary you'll tell me this is how the evolutionary nature of viruses kind of work is that they're they'll you know effectively random mutations occur some of them are really successful yep. um and then that's why you have you have these variations kind of popping up so that yeah. that's kind of another broader and, question i did have some figures on that but i won't bore you with those at this point yeah no and i think you know look as as we go into the the, the run into christmas that we we do all you know whilst i don't agree with the the prime ministers well we all need to do our bit but we're not going to tell you what your bit is that you need to do you know we, we all have personal responsibility and we can you know we can be sensible about these things and look i'm still hopeful of um supping your dad's and my father-in-law's port on boxing day and that's whilst that's not the most important thing in the world um yeah, i guess that represents our not our new normal but our old normal for christmas and um my fingers are crossed that we're still going to get a chance. Um, hopefully so. Um, I mean, if not, Ian, you appear to have dropped off the call. I don't know whether the cat has stood on something um, because the cat was sat in front of the computer. Um, but whether that means that we have to, um, that we end up meeting in their garden to do that. I mean, Paul isn't very good in the garden, but I'm sure we can find a way. Uh, to get around that, we're industrious um, and inventive. Um, so just before we go, uh, as we say, we've got two more shows this year. So we're going to, so our last show of the year is going to be December the 12th. Um, so we've got an open schedule for the next two shows at the moment. If you've got any ideas or anything that you would like um, us to cover in those two shows, um, by all means, please do um, email us, pompeypoliticspodcast at gmail.com or contact us through our Facebook page or contact us via Twitter. Um, and 
um, we, we'd love to hear from you. Um, but in the meantime, uh, please do keep safe of yourself and of each other. And um, Ian has just sent me a message to say that the cat has indeed logged him out of the transmission. So I will wrap up the show. I've been Simon Sansbury. You've been listening to the Pompey Politics podcast. Uh, good night. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Pompey Politics Podcast. If you want to make sure you get notifications about upcoming shows and get to know when we're live, we normally broadcast live 6.27pm on a Sunday evening, then follow us on Facebook at Pompey Politics Podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at Pompey Politics One. Please, if you'd like to, feel free to leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and you can even ask Alexa to play the podcast for you. Alexa. Play the latest episode of the Pompey Politics Podcast. Getting Pompey Politics Podcast from Amazon Music. Alexa, the latest episode. stop. See? It's easy.